Remember how, in the first episode, we heard how the great war hero Lionel Crabb slipped into the waters of Portsmouth Harbour, went on a mysterious diving mission, and then vanished, disappeared, was never seen again, and became the subject of an extraordinary cover-up that continues to this day. We need to fast forward from that moment, fast forward two years, shift the focus to 1958, to London, in fact, to a very precise location in London. There's a world-famous cinema right in the heart of the city, the Odeon Leicester Square, launchpad of a thousand movies, famous for its paparazzi premieres, its lush red carpet, its glitz and glitter and star-dripping glamour. It's our own little slice of celebrity Hollywood. Mary Poppins, You Only Live Twice, and only recently Top Gun Maverick. If you've got a big budget and a big movie, this is where you launch it. And so it was in 1958. It's the most hotly anticipated film of the year. And the press are here, and the critics are here, and the cheering crowds. And now the stars are also here. Lawrence Harvey in tux and bow tie, Dawn Adams all smiles and lipstick and diamonds. And although the actors' names might not mean much today, these were the superstars of the late 50s. And they're here for one thing alone, the world premiere of The Silent Enemy. It's the biggest showbiz extravaganza in ages, and it already looks set to be the blockbuster of the year. Those chariots have altered the naval balance of power in the Mediterranean. They may yet alter the course of this war. Already they've chosen their next target. Ourselves. Gibraltar, gentlemen. The gateway. Whether we like it or not, we're the gateway to the Mediterranean. The silent enemy. It's a big budget, big star, big everything movie. And a sun-splash, sea-sparkling location. It's the Mediterranean, it's summer, it's wartime. And it's based on the true story of one of Britain's greatest wartime heroes, a man who saved thousands of lives, who had the most extraordinary, eye-popping adventures. Name? Crab. Christian names? Lionel Philip Kenneth. Lionel Philip Kenneth Crab, wartime hero, national celebrity, and yes, the man who went missing two years earlier in Portsmouth Harbour. He's already been the subject of a huge bestseller, Commander Crab penned by a famous journalist. And now, on the back of Crabbe's mysterious disappearance, comes the silent enemy. Do you consider you're medically and psychologically suited to underwater work? Yes, sir. Right, you've got the job. The silent enemy is even dedicated to Lionel Crabbe. It's a sort of all-action biopic, the story of a man who risks his own life in order to save the lives of others. Think they'll come? They'll come. There's a ton of action, gunfights, battleships that explode. And Crab always comes out on top. The real wartime heroes, yes, of course, they were all about gun battles and macho heroics and daring do, but they were also people. They had their moods and eccentricities and weaknesses. 
There are plenty of wild claims about Crab, but as with his disappearance, it's hard to get to the bottom of who he really was. He's a mystery, an enigma, and maybe full of surprises. I'm Giles Milton, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets. Episode 2, A Letter from Mrs Crab. Springtime is all about fresh air, fresh starts, and freshly clean homes. And it's the perfect time to give a fresh look at Simply Safe Home Security. The home security system many of the most anxious people I know recommend. Here's why people love it. Trusted by experts, Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System for 2024 by US News and World Report. And Newsweek awarded it Best Customer Service in Home Security. The system blankets your whole home in protection. It has sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more plus a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch over your property day and night. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day, so you get fast emergency response and dispatch when you need it most. Simply Safe has given many of our listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash coverup. That's simplysafe.com slash coverup. There's no safe like Simply Safe. In the last episode, The Guardian's investigative journalist, Rob Evans, told us that any official files about the Lionel Crab mission should have ended up in the National Archives in southwest London. So my producer, Sarah, and I are heading there to find out exactly what they've got. This is going to sound weird but there's something about visiting archives that gets my juices going. It's not like I literally start salivating or anything, but I definitely get a little frisson of excitement when I spin through that revolving door of the National Archives. Because when you order a box of documents and the box arrives at your desk and you ever so carefully untie the grubby white ribbon, there's that slight smell of must, of typewriter ink, of oldness, and you have absolutely no idea what you might find. There are days when you find nothing, and there are days when you find yourself clutching some top-secret document signed by Churchill, or Roosevelt, or Stalin. It's their handwriting. They held that very sheet of paper in their hands. And that gets me very excited indeed. And when you look through the archives, when you leaf through the memos and letters and diaries, it's like a jigsaw. You can start to piece together people's lives, put flesh onto old bones. You can actually rebuild people who are long dead. And we're hoping to rebuild Lionel Crab. This is what's brought me and my producer Sarah to the National Archives in Kew, just a few miles outside London. We've come to see what we can find out about Lionel Buster Crab. 
weird looking, isn't it, this place? Yeah, it's like a, it's almost like a sort of fortress, as though they, you know, they built these defences to keep all the documents in. Look at it, it's massive, great chunks of concrete there. And they have millions of files under, you know, in their vaults, and uh, they're underneath us right now. Maybe the embargoed crab file is right under our feet. <laughs> Should we get digging? <laughs> Did you bring a shovel? <laughs> So Sarah and I head inside the building, passing lots of old folk here to research their family history. And well, we don't have to wait long. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. Very nice to meet you. Very good to meet you as well. That's Will Butler, professional archivist, historical expert, and he's going to help us sift through the Lionel Crab papers. Yes, fantastic. And as we settle down in a quiet room, it all begins to get exciting because there's a large trolley being wheeled into the room. Wow. And it's got a shiny brass padlock and metal bars covered with a green tarpaulin. So these, very secure. So these have come from where, then, these, these files? Um, so they've come this morning from our repositories. Right. So, um, but, you know, they're all held securely downstairs. We have some... Will explains stuff. there's a rabbit warren of underground corridors beneath the building we're in. There are many hundreds of kilometres of shelving, full of boxes upon boxes upon boxes, floor to ceiling of records. It's yeah, a labyrinth. Again, they're, they're so and Will says it's also kind of spooky, because once you're down in that vast, lonely maze, it can be very quiet and very dark. Uh, yes, no windows at all, strip lighting that is kind of activated as you walk along the corridors. Will tells us that some of the papers down below are deeply sensitive, national security and all that. And I'm beginning to wonder if this is why there's a press officer in the room, a young American woman who seems to be listening in on everything we're doing. There's a, a kind of a, a bit of an array of documents within here. There's some cuttings uh, from... At first glance, there seems to be a lot of official papers, memos from Whitehall, that's the centre of power in London. There's old newspaper cuttings. It's all so fragile, this newspaper. It almost disintegrates in your hand. Yeah, so in this case... Extracts from parliamentary speeches. Sort of readings from Hansard, if you like. And then, suddenly I'm brought up sharp. And I'm getting that familiar little tingle. Because I've just opened a folder, and it contains a letter from a Mrs Margaret Crabbe. And it turns out that Lionel Crabbe had been married, and they were now divorced. And with this letter, I find myself with a piece of Crabbe's personal life in my hands. So much is known about Lionel Crabbe the myth, the dashing wartime hero and all that. But what about Crabbe the man? Who was he? When I looked into the story of Crabbe all those years ago, I did a bit of digging, tried to discover more about him, but there's not much reliable information out there. But here's what I do know. Those officer heroes who made their name during the war, so many of them were of a type, posh, educated at Eton, then on to Oxford or Cambridge. But Crabbe, this is where I got a big surprise. He was the very opposite. Family on the breadline, left school at 14. And when he eventually joined the Navy, he was very different from the tall, athletic rugby types. In fact, he was the opposite. Short, never did any exercise. He couldn't even swim that well but he was determined, the sort of person who used his elbows to rise through the ranks. And what about his private life? Like his marriage to Margaret, whose letter I'm holding. It wasn't exactly a match made in heaven. What had gone wrong with their relationship? Because a year after getting married, it was all over. They'd separated and Crabbe was drinking heavily, taken up gambling in a big way. He was depressed. 
and it's safe to assume his life was a bit of a mess. The photos of Crab that you find online, they're all pretty similar. He's usually in diving gear, breathing tubes, oxygen tanks, and looking like he's having the time of his life. But maybe things aren't quite as they seem. Because among those photos of Crab, there's one from the year 1956, the year he went missing, and it tells a very different story. He looks outwardly familiar, the same ruffled hair and bushy eyebrows, but I can't help thinking he's got a slightly sad look in his eyes. And that faint smile, it's almost like he's putting it on for the camera. Is that something he's hiding? So here I am at the National Archives, holding the letter written by Margaret Crabb, ex-wife of Lionel. Their relationship had ended a couple of years earlier, but she still seems to care about him. In fact, you can tell she's worried sick. Will, the archivist, reads the letter from her. It's been a year since you informed me of Commander Crabb, who was my husband, was missing on trials as a frogman. Uh, in Portsmouth Harbour. So Margaret Crabb thought her ex-husband was engaged in underwater research before he disappeared. And she essentially says that she's not been notified at any point whether he is alive or dead. And then she's basically begging them to give her some information about her, her missing ex-husband. No one's given her any news. Nothing. But then Sarah spots something. There's an additional paragraph and handwritten. It's a secret memo between two Whitehall officials. And whoever wrote these words is trying to make sure Margaret Crabb is kept in the dark about her missing husband. This says, I was not aware of any undertaking to tell Mrs Crabb any further news of her former husband, as she suggests in her letter. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? Yes, I think occasionally it does come across as incredibly callous. And although they're now divorced, Margaret wants news. And she's getting desperate, because 12 months have now passed since Lionel Crabbe's disappearance. And she still doesn't even know if he's dead or alive. But Margaret Crabbe is stubborn, determined. So she takes the only option left to her. And that's to go to the press. I pull out the clipping of an interview she gave in Portsmouth. So this is a cutting from the Herald newspaper. It's from Monday, April the 29th, 1957. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. in terms of the timing. Yeah, yeah. And... Is Frogman Crab alive? Asks ex-wife. So basically, she's gone to the press. It's out there. So Margaret Crab is telling the paper that she believes Lionel Crab is still alive. And there's more. And this is extraordinary. She believes that he's living somewhere else. She goes on to say he's in the Soviet Union, that he's been working in the Soviet Union and that he will be returning home soon. What you've got to realise is that this claim that he's still alive and living in communist Moscow is freaking out those in power. Because don't forget that up to now, there's been no definitive explanation about what's happened to him. And the government can't have Margaret Crabbe going rogue. Her voice was a powerful one, because people, the great general public, were already hooked on the story of Lionel Crabbe. 
And here was a dramatic new twist. This was the middle of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union was no friend of Great Britain. And the idea that one of Britain's wartime heroes had, well, had what? Defected? Been captured? And so those in Whitehall, they had to act, had to tell her something to shut her story down. She receives a letter on the 7th of May, 1957. Madam, it says, I am commanded by my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty to inform you that Lieutenant Commander L.K.P. Crabb is presumed by the Admiralty for official purposes to have died on the 19th of April, 1956. So there you go, Crabb is officially dead. That's very unsatisfactory, isn't it, really? He's officially dead. There's no explanation, there's no body. I mean, I bet Margaret Crabb was not satisfied with that answer, though. No. So Whitehall says he's dead, but offers no evidence. And Margaret Crabb says he's alive. And what I see next, well, everything gets even more bizarre. It's a single sheet of paper with an official stamp. This one says closed until I can't even read what it says, actually. That's, that does say indefinitely. And then if we look up here in the stamp, so it was re-reviewed in 1992, and the decision was still to keep it closed. But what does that mean, documents that are indefinitely closed? Could someone within Whitehall have blocked those documents? Do they still do that today? And I can see the press officer from her desk in the corner of the room suddenly raising her hand. She seems to be objecting to talking about how Whitehall works today. I've clearly hit a raw nerve. Why on earth would these documents be indefinitely closed? Do they contain the truth of what happened to Lionel Crabbe? ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. When Lionel Crabbe made his secret dive, he was heading towards a Soviet ship recently moored in Portsmouth Harbour. I told you that in episode one. It was one of the first things I discovered when writing my chapter on Crabbe all those years ago. That ship, it's huge. The height of a six-storey office block, the length of no fewer than four Olympic swimming pools. And it's all turrets and radar and state-of-the-art technology. And it has a real air of menace with its dark steel hull and three giant guns. 
And as if that's not enough to make an impression, it's anchored alongside its two sister ships, which are also bristling with guns and are almost as big. And these three ships, strangers in a strange port, had been at sea for more than three days. So who was on board? Who have these ships brought to Great Britain? The two most powerful people in the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev and Nikolai Bulganin. I want to zoom out for a moment, because, I mean, how come they're visiting England at the height of the Cold War? After all, it's a time of hostility. This is Simon Miles, American professor and expert on the Cold War. By the mid-1950s, both of the so-called superpowers are bristling with nuclear weapons. But also, and I think this is really important, two states that are making nuclear weapons the center of their defense planning. So the world at this time is in a very dangerous place. People are terrified of a nuclear confrontation, governments too. In fact, the American government was so worried about being attacked by the Soviets that it issued a public information film called Duck and Cover. It told school kids what to do in the event of a nuclear explosion. Duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you. And the message could not have been clearer. That signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. Always remember, a flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time, no matter where you may be. Here's Tony going to his Cub Scout meeting. Tony knows the bomb can explode any time of the year, day or night. He is ready for it. Given the unprecedented threat and the tense state of the world, it's bizarre to see three Soviet warships in Britain's biggest port, home to the Royal Navy. But this is all down to the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden. You see, his dream is for Britain to be a global player, a bridge between the two hostile superpowers. And he has a big idea. And so, my friends, I conclude. My message to you tonight is that on the foreign front, in a situation more anxious than a while ago, we will persevere in our work for peace. Eden's idea of Britain being great again, it's quite an ambition. Remember, Britain's a shadow of what it used to be. Its empire's crumbling, it's impoverished, broken by war. It had only just stopped rationing food. But Prime Minister Eden is determined for the country to have a powerful voice, to have influence. Here's Simon Miles again, our Cold War expert. Eden thinks of this as an opportunity to carve out a diplomatic niche. And, that's and so he's going to reach out to Nikita Khrushchev, strongman of the Soviet Union, invite him on a state visit. And the meeting of these two leaders, well, it's going to be an almighty power kick for Eden. So Eden thinks, we get the Soviets here, we make some agreements, we show some progress, and in the future, the Americans are going to try to deal with the Soviet Union through us. So Eden wants Britain to be a bridge between America and the Soviet Union. He wants to be totally in charge of this visit. It's his project, and he's going to micromanage it, because nothing 
must go wrong. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. So this visit of the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, coming to meet Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, there's one potential problem. These two men, they're chalk and cheese, polar opposites. Anthony Eden's all Etonian charm. Hello, old chap, how about a glass of port? And Khrushchev, a man not exactly known for his manners. So he was crass, he was brash, he was loud. That's Simon Miles again. He was not prone to what we could call diplomatic niceties. He was a fan of uh, toilet humour. He was a fan of male appendage-centric humour. And as Simon Miles is telling me all this, I can't help wondering what Khrushchev's going to make of Buckingham Palace and 10 Downing Street and Chequers, the Prime Minister's grand country estate. He was a fan, frankly, of embarrassing people. And he, he used this in order to assert his dominance. He would tell jokes at their expense. You get a room of 500 people laughing at you. But despite all this, Eden's formal invite for a state visit is accepted. And in the spring of 1956, Khrushchev and his entourage set off from the port of Kaliningrad on the Baltic coast aboard those three Soviet ships. And the biggest of all, the Orjonikidze, it's filled with menace. And once on board, well, they're quite a party. There's Nikita Khrushchev himself, of course, and Soviet Premier Nikolai Bulganin, and government officials, and hundreds of sailors. And Khrushchev, right from the outset, to show he's the boss, he plays the bully, kicks the captain from his cabin. And get the most comfortable digs on board. But those digs, the cabin, unlike the sleek exterior of the ship, it's pretty basic. This would have been a, a small room, probably the size of uh, kind of a university dormitory room. It would have been very sparsely furnished. But this is a 1950s Soviet warship, so the standard of comfort, even in the best of circumstances, was frankly pretty low. Among those hundreds of Soviet sailors, all dressed in their blue marine gear and their smart black caps, among them, are some of Khrushchev's most loyal KGB agents. There were those few um, special divers, secret service divers, disguised 
as um, sailors, as members of the crew. And his, he says that... He this is Masha, old Russian friend. She's got cropped hair, lots of big silver rings on her fingers. She's helped research several of my books, digging out information from deep in the Russian archives. And she's telling me that not everything is quite as it seemed aboard Khrushchev's state-of-the-art vessel. Even the members of the crew, they were not aware. Marsha says that even the members of the crew were unaware that KGB agents were working undercover. And so those three Soviet warships set sail, and it'll take them three days to reach Portsmouth via the Baltic, the North German coast, the Danish Straits. Until finally, they'll reach the narrow waters of the English Channel. And soon they're approaching the south coast of England, and they can just about make out the famous white cliffs as they head past Dover and on towards Portsmouth. And that night, the night before they arrive, what are they doing? Preparing for their meetings with the Queen, the Prime Minister, the British Cabinet? Uh, not exactly. It was Khrushchev's birthday and they had a huge celebration on the boat and they would drink lots of proclaiming toast. So they basically were drunk all the time. <laughs> they would drink vodka, of course, and brandy, cognac and um, champagne, everything. And so the ships approach Portsmouth Harbour. And I'm guessing that Khrushchev and everyone else on board, even those tough KGB guys, are nursing the most crashing vodka-induced hangover. And the British tugboats arrive to guide them into the harbour. And as they pass from the choppy currents of the channel and into the harbour itself, there's a sudden stillness as the water turns to glass. And the crew on deck, they're excited because they've never seen England before. They can see the old Tudor Tower at the harbour mouth and the tumble-down houses of old Portsmouth, some still bearing the scars of war. And on their right, they can see an old waterfront pub called the Coal Exchange. As the Soviet ships pass, the pub landlady spots a short, dark-haired man seated by the upstairs window with a pint of beer in his hand and a player's cigarette smouldering in the ashtray. He was observing those ships, and that landlady would later tell journalists she thought he was a man with a mission on his mind. It's been years since the war came to an end, and life has been tough on Lionel Crabb. And he's in reflective mood on this particular evening, because all the troubles of the past seem to have suddenly melted away. But why? Why is he feeling so reflective? Because Lionel Crabb has just signed up for a mission that's secret, exhilarating, and if all goes to plan, it's going to be the start of a bright new future. Next time on Ministry of Secrets. I said to Commander Crabb, what are these people? He said, well, you've heard them. It sounded to me and looked like a communist cell. And I thought, he's going to go to Russia. I don't like this. Want the full story? Unlock all episodes of Cover Up Ministry of Secrets ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge. All episodes, all at once. 
Plus, you'll unlock brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes all at once, all ad-free. Just click subscribe on the top of the cover-up Ministry of Secrets show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you listen. Find out more about The Binge and other podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com forward slash podcasts. Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets, is a something else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is the story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music, with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. With thanks to Tuning Fork Productions. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.